This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 12th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, coming to you this week again from Phoenix, and we're going to talk about some of the things that have happened this week in taxes, this week just before the day that was supposed to be the regular big due date for individual returns, but now has become just the due date for trusts and individual extensions, and we'll talk a little bit about that in today's session. But first, going to start out discussing some guidance the IRS gave this week on the American Rescue Plan Act provisions related to the advanced premium tax credit for 2020. We'll also talk about a chief counsel advice that was issued that gives some additional explanation about how you apply a revenue ruling, a revenue procedure that came out a couple of years ago when you receive a hard fork of a virtual currency. Gives you a couple of options, specifically describing the differences between a currency that you might be holding in a wallet on your device versus a currency that is on deposit with an exchange and why that could be a key difference and could have a big impact on how much income you recognize. The IRS also published a action on decision this week where they disagreed with the tax court's ruling about what can be used and can't be used in computing insolvency for a taxpayer who's trying to use Section 108A2 and the insolvency exception to escape paying tax on some or all of debt forgiveness. The IRS this week had to define, because this was brought up at the end of the year's tax bill in the Consolidated Appropriations Act, what is a restaurant for purposes of the 100% business meals deduction, because those meals have to come from a restaurant. And finally, we're going to talk about an issue that's been driving a lot of accountants crazy um, and realistically probably isn't worth near the amount of time that many have spent doing it. But let's go ahead and discuss what happens if you go ahead at May 17th and pay extra with the extension, have an overpayment, does that overpayment get applied back to the first quarter estimated tax for 2021 this year? Or is it not going to be able to be applied to the first, but rather can't count until at earliest the second quarter? We'll talk about what we have in the way of rulings to discuss in that area. But let's get started first with a post on the IRS website. This is an IRS news release, 2021-84. This was issued on April the 9th, and it's entitled, The IRS Suspends Requirements to Repay Excess Advanced Payments of the 2020 Premium Tax Credit. Those claiming net premium tax credit must file Form 8962. Nice long title. Also, interestingly, how the IRS has claimed credit for this. In reality, as far as I can tell, it was the Congress that actually suspended the requirements to repay the excess advance payments. But I suspect the IRS figures since it gets blamed for everything that Congress does, they might as well take some credit uh, in this particular case. This is the problem that in the American Recovery Plan Act of 2021 that was signed into law on March the 11th, Congress added a provision that said if a taxpayer in 2020 had received an advance on the premium tax credit, 
That is the credit you get when you buy your insurance from the exchange. You are below, you're at or below 400% of the poverty level. And your payment level for the second lowest cost silver policy is more than a fixed percentage, depending upon your income, of your household income, then there is a tax credit for that difference. Well, obviously, the idea of this, since it was to get people to buy insurance, wasn't going to be a whole lot of use for a lot of people who have trouble day to day, you know, week to week making ends meet. They can't really wait till April 15th of the following year to be given a rebate back, you know, to kind of refund the insurance they paid. So it has a prepayment, but we have to, at the end of the year, go back, recalculate, and not necessarily pay back all of the difference, but traditionally paid back a significant chunk of that difference. Congress said, well, we're going to skip that for 2020. So if you did go to the exchange and you got more premium tax credit advance payment than you end up qualifying for, hey, you just lucked out in 2020. But the problem was that was done after a lot of people had filed the returns, and we didn't really have any good guidance from the IRS about how in the world we were supposed to deal with reporting that. Well, what the IRS says now is if you have a situation where you look at your Form 8962, which is the form on which you reconcile the 1095A from the exchange you know, and your advanced premium credit that you got, and you take a look at that. What did you pay for the insurance? What was the second highest cost silver policy, right? How much credit should you have qualified for? How much advance payment did you get? And if you got more advance payment than you qualified for credit, we would then compute an amount you should repay. Well, since we're not going to be repaying it this year, the IRS says you're still going to have to compute 8962. Because if it turns out that the advance payment was less than the credit you qualified for, you're still going to want to claim that extra credit. But they said if the form computes a balance to pay, they simply say, okay, at that point, don't file it with the return. We're just not going to file this issue. That's how we're going to deal with it. Now, that is great for somebody who had not yet filed their Form 1040 for the year. Of course, this came out on the 9th of April, which, as you might guess, is somewhat less than a week before what would normally have been the due date and probably well after the date that a lot of taxpayers, you know, who would file expecting refunds. And yes, they might have some repayment offset there, but those people probably filed way earlier. So the IRS starts and says, well, one thing we don't want those people to do. So there are people who have already repaid amounts of advanced premium tax credit, and they shouldn't have. Well, the IRS again tells everybody, don't file an amended return. That probably makes sense because I suspect if you've done any amended returns recently, you know they don't move very fast at all. So we're not going to see a whole lot happening there. The IRS said, just like with unemployment, that is excludable. They're going to go ahead and figure out, in this case, in theory, relatively easily, they simply refund that advanced premium tax credit payment you made. Now, software vendors are beginning to support this now, so we're seeing other software vendors do it. One complication that the IRS has not totally explained yet, 
but I have a feeling the vendors may be doing it right, is if you're a member, you know, that's health insurance. And you might be eligible to deduct the health insurance you paid for, either as a deduction on the, you know, on your tax return, let's say for self-employed, so that's above the line, or maybe you actually can qualify on Schedule A for medical expenses and you'd get it there. Well, now the question becomes, if in fact you should have repaid part of the loan or repaid part of the subsidy, um, you know, and traditionally the amount you would have been allowed would have been related back to whatever you debted out, right, and what you should have repaid, do we go back and adjust that or not? Do we treat it as if it had been repaid, even though you're not? A lot of software is assuming that, yeah, we treat it like it was repaid and like you did pay the higher cost for the policy. If that, the reason why that might be where the IRS goes is that it would make it much simpler to do the amended return process. Then it's going to be, if you had to go back and refigure, especially on Schedule A, uh, how much medical insurance deduction was actually allowed on the return versus what was put on there. And you still could even have other medical coverage, presumably, that might be in the self-employed category that wouldn't necessarily come from the exchange. So, yeah, I mean, I think that may be a simplicity, but we don't really have guidance because it seems a little weird if I didn't actually pay for it. Can I still claim it as self-employed health insurance? Again, we don't have any official guidance. The news release doesn't go down with that and tell us what to do. Now, the other thing we have is it comes with a fact sheet that was related, and you'll find a link to the news release. And that fact sheet tells us about what to do in various situations, including if we had excess advanced premium tax credit, you filed the return with Form 8962 and it's being processed. Uh, the IRS should basically, you know, as I said, they'll reduce the excess premium tax credit uh, and fix the return if it's in process. Come back and do that. Uh, and if they receive a letter, I love this, though. If you receive a letter about excess of advanced premium tax credit for 2020, uh, disregard the letter, which I always love that. It's like, Telling people to disregard IRS letters is a bit dangerous. We'll see how that goes. I'm sure that can't go wrong, but we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, if you had excess advanced premium tax credit, you filed return form without the, you return without the A962. Well, they're saying in theory the IRS should just let that go through, no problem. But if they don't, uh, basically, you know, we they'll kind of you know get around to it and fix it later. Uh, that's kind of an interesting one. Uh, if you paid an excess APTC payment when you filed your return, we'll refund the money. Uh, if you're claiming a net premium tax credit, that is when you need to file the 8962. If you haven't, and if you get a letter about it, that's the one you've got to respond to if there should have been a higher credit. So that's kind of the way it goes. Finally, the IRS reminded everybody in the news release that this is a one-year only program. So if you're being chased by the IRS for not paying back your premium tax credit for 2019, this doesn't change that, nor is it going to change the fact that in 2021, you still would have to pay back excess advanced premium tax credit. It only affects 2020. They remind everybody this is how this one works. Next up, 
The IRS and Chief Counsel Advice 2021-14020, also on April 9th, takes a look at applying two different situations involving virtual currencies to 2019's Revenue Ruling 2019-24. If you remember 2019-24, that was a ruling in 2019 that attempted to address the taxation when a virtual currency had a various transactions, hard forks and soft forks, to get all those definitions given to us. Well, this particular ruling is looking specifically at the 2017, August 2017, hard fork that occurred where we started with Bitcoin split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Everybody who held one unit of Bitcoin, how many units of Bitcoin you held on the magic day, and that magic day actually and time was August 1st, 2017, 916 Eastern Daylight Time or 1316 UTC. If you whatever you held at that point, you got an identical amount of Bitcoin cash. Now the question becomes how do you under the revenue ruling recognize the income? Because revenue ruling said that was an income producing transaction. But they had some conditions. So this goes back and says, okay, let's chief counsel advice. And this is probably agent facing the problem. Uh, I've got this going on. The taxpayer had Bitcoin. Uh, you know, how in the world do we apply it to this situation? And the IRS gives two different situations. In the first situation, uh, the way the IRS phrases it, the taxpayer had personal control over the Bitcoin private key at the time of the hard fork. Normally, that would be the case where you were maintaining and holding the private key, holding the Bitcoin, you know, in a wallet on your phone or other device. You had not transferred that Bitcoin to an exchange where often people transfer it there because that's where you'd be able to sell it, to get cash, to do other things with it. Right. So and some people use that to just keep their Bitcoin there instead of in that wallet application on their phone. OK, fine. Well, what they looked at first was a situation where you did have total control over it. You kept it in the wallet application on your phone in that situation when the split occurred at that time on, you know, on August 1st, 2017 at 916 in the morning when you got your immediate, you know, appearance of Bitcoin cash, the fair market value of the Bitcoin cash at that instant in time was what you were going to pay tax on because the service points out that you had full control over the Bitcoin cash at that point in time. So in that particular case, you essentially have immediate taxation, but only on the value that exists at that point. Now, in many cases with a hard fork, there may be a hard fork where it's not clear if that other currency would ever take off, ever have any value. There may be no real market for it at the time, in which case then this could be a very, very low value, even close to, or maybe you could argue it was zero at the time. There was no market. However, the other way, let's say you didn't have that Bitcoin in your wallet, in, you know, in the wallet on your phone or on your computer, wherever you were keeping this stuff. Rather, you had it out on exchange like Coinbase. And the IRS pointed out that when we talk about Bitcoin Cash, uh, Coinbase 
you know, while August 1st, 2017 was when the Bitcoin Cash was created. Coinbase didn't start trading in Bitcoin Cash until December 19th of 2017. And so if you had Bitcoin there on August 1st, you didn't have a direct access to Bitcoin Cash because Coinbase wasn't dealing in that. Now, if when we got to that date in December, then they said, okay, all you people that had your Bitcoin here on August 1st, here's your Bitcoin Cash. You can now work with it. If that is your situation, then you pay tax based on that date. So December 19th, in this case, my date, right? Yeah, December 19th, 2017, that becomes the magic date for those that had their Bitcoin you know, stored at Coinbase on the date of the fork. And the chief counsel advice talks about how to value and when to include an income. And the key takeaway here is this is a solid example of basically using something like Coinbase of how you would deal with this transaction and deal with the fact that exchanges are not always going to pick up these forked currencies because their assumption is a lot of them just kind of, you know, crash and burn, never go anywhere. They're going to wait to see if a market develops and only if it develops, then they will start trade. Then will they start trading in that currency? So be aware of that. And that also means you need to find out if your client was holding currency that was involved in a fork transaction. You have to figure out exactly where they were holding it. And then at that point, try to figure out when they had first access to the wealth that would be contained there inside of the, you know, the hard fork, the new cryptocurrency that they now have. Next up, we have, in this case, Action on Decision, AOD, 2021-01, issued on April the 9th. Everything this week appears to be April 9th. It's kind of interesting. We had a lot happening into the week. This takes a look at a question that involves a taxpayer who has debt canceled. And remember, under Section 108, there are a series of situations in which, despite the fact that you had debt canceled, and that generally under Code Section 61A12, if I remember my citation correctly, uh, that's considered to be cancellation of debt is income. Because let's face it, you got cash, right? Let's say you got cash or you got some asset. You didn't pay for it. Right. You instead got this cash or you got the asset, but you essentially weren't the one to put up the cash. Well, if you never actually pay that back, clearly you got something that was what the courts refer to as an accession to wealth. Now, the problem is, of course, quite often when that happens and people can't pay back the debt is because financially they've got a bit of a big problem at this point in time. And so the law provides various cases in which. Even though you have this income, we're not going to force you to recognize either any of it or some of it. And one of the cases where you don't have to recognize the income is if at the instant of the cancellation of the debt, the taxpayer was insolvent. To the extent of the taxpayer's insolvency immediately prior to the cancellation of the debt, the taxpayer does not have to pay tax on that income. Now, they do have to reduce basis, reduce attributes. There are various other things that happen. 
But the question in this case came in a case, which was the case of Scheiber versus Commissioner from TC Memo 2017-32. This was a case dealing with that situation. The IRS in this action on decision is announcing that they are not going to follow the tax court's decision. But it's important to understand what the tax court ruled here. Uh, the court found the question become very simply. The taxpayer, you know, had all these debts outstanding, had assets. And ignoring the interest in the defined benefit pension plan that they were currently receiving a monthly benefit from, the taxpayer was clearly insolvent. The IRS agreed they were. As well, the pension plan that the taxpayer was getting benefits from only allowed the taxpayer to receive monthly payments. The IRS agreed, didn't dispute, the plan did not allow any other way to access the money of the pension plan. You had to wait and you got your monthly payment for life. And, you know, if you die, then, you know, we stop paying. Now, the question became, is that the value of that income stream, is that an asset for computing insolvency? The tax court in the Scheiber case ruled that no, it's not an asset for that purpose. And therefore, in this case, the taxpayer was not insolvent for all of about a $500,000 uh, mortgage that was canceled, but they were, you know, insolvent to the extent of about half of it. Now, the IRS had argued that a previous case, and actually one that I wrote up and would talk about back when I was doing the uh, debt-related tax issues cases following the real estate crisis, and toward the end, in 2012, this came up one of the, in the last couple of years I was doing that session before people no longer cared about that session because, hey, you know, real estate crisis was over. We had a case called Shepard. And Shepard was a case. The IRS says, wait, wait, Shepard says you should include it. But the key was that the court pointed out here where they said, nope, first thing is Shepard's not precedential, but then again, neither is Shiber. But they said, but ignoring that, in Shepard, yes, you had a taxpayer. Yes, they were. They had a defined benefit pension plan benefit that they could receive. But the court pointed out under that plan with Shepard, the taxpayer could borrow against their future benefit. And that borrowing, you know, the extent to which they could borrow was what the court had counted in valuing the interest in that plan. And the court said, in this case, the key difference is they don't have any way to access the funds. With no way to access the funds, the court held, you know what, those rules don't apply. You know, we're not going to go like Shepard. We're going to rather say all he's allowed to do is collect a monthly check. So we're going to treat that as no asset. And he's insolvent. Now, this was a 2017 case. We're sitting here in 2021. But the IRS felt, probably because of concerns, we may be sitting on some of this. There's been a lot of concern. We're going to see some foreclosures and other things as all of these no foreclosure rules or no, you know, no, no actions or deferred actions uh, stop at the end of the COVID pandemic. And it turns out that the people involved now are 12 months behind and aren't catching up anytime soon. Uh, you know, we could have these sorts of cancellation of debt issues. I think that's probably why the IRS said this. 
But the IRS decided now, this four years later, say we're not going to follow this. And specifically, they say that they not acquiesce to the holding that an interest in a defined benefit pension plan is not an asset for purpose of applying the insolvency exclusion in Section 108. Now, what not acquiescence means, and actually we won't know in our article, we quote what is always put in all the AODs, the Action on Decisions. It means that effectively, right, although no further review was sought, so they didn't actually appeal this decision. Right, they didn't take it to the Court of Appeals, or if they had lost the Court of Appeals, they didn't attempt to ask the Supreme Court to rule on it. That even though they went ahead and they, you know, let the taxpayer, in this case, get the benefit, right? The, you know, they disagree with the holding of the court, and they will not follow that holding in the future. What that means from a practical standpoint is if you have a client who is insolvent, or let's say who is as debt cancel, and they're insolvent without considering the value of a defined benefit plan benefit they may have rights to. But if you did the present value of that, they would be solvent or at least somewhat more solvent, which could change how much they pay tax on. The IRS is going to insist on a value and that value of that defined benefit plan being included even though the courts are saying, or at least the tax court in the case of Scheiber, said, no, you don't need to do that. Now, why that's a practical problem for us is, you know, now, there's a real good chance you go to tax court, you're going to get the Scheiber result. However, until you get to tax court, it's very likely that at exam level, pretty much for sure, and probably at appeals because since an AOD is out there, you know, essentially the appellate conferees are told, no, we want to litigate this, right? We're going to fight over it and we want to take it back to court. And presumably if you're in the right uh, court of appeals district that they think they have a good chance in, they would then like to take this up to a court of appeals and get the tax court overturned and then move forward. They basically say, nope, we don't want you settling this. So it indicates a problem. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, we do understand that there is an argument the tax court will accept, and there's a problem. So if you do have a client in that position who has a debt that's been canceled, they appear to be insolvent, but there's this retirement plan benefit over here, you probably should inquire, because it's what the tax court did, about to what extent could they access those assets. That does include borrowing against them. And I suppose the tax court theory there was, well, you borrow against them. Okay, let's say you don't pay it back. Well, in that case, all the plan's going to do is offset the loan. So essentially, you got the money out. It gets offset when you don't pay back or you, you, know, you, you miss your payment scheme. And again, we don't worry about an insolvency, the tax cost of liquidating that asset. So effectively, they're saying, yeah, if you get access to it, to the extent you get access to the plan benefit, that's going to be an asset. If you can't get access to it, then we're going to say, no, it's not. Now, generally, that's why IRA accounts are the sort of thing that's always going to be considered in an insolvency calculation. This is a defined benefit plan, so it kind of leaves open defined contribution plans. But generally, in a lot of defined contribution plans, we're at least going to be able to access you know, we're going to be able to access half of the value in borrowing 
which I assume the court would use there. But as I say, it is interesting four years later, the IRS felt the need to distinguish on this case and say, yeah, we're not following that, so don't bring it up in front of us. You know, don't try to justify based on that unless you plan to go to court. And if you go to court, we may very well take you up to the Court of Appeals to see what's going on. So in essence, to a taxpayer, you say this could get very expensive to fight. Next up, notice 2021-25. This came out on the 8th of April, one day earlier. So we did get something to move here. And this is an interesting notice that tells us what is a restaurant. Now, you might wonder why, after all these years, we need a definition of what's a restaurant. Well, we need it because in the year-end tax bill that we had, part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act, one of the items inside of there allowed taxpayers for 2021 and 2022 to get a 100% deduction for the cost of business meals that are obtained from a restaurant. So the idea is if I have business meals from a restaurant, you know, it, you know, whatever that means, we're going to get a full deduction. We don't have to reduce that for 50% under 274 like we usually do. But the question becomes, what's a restaurant? So the IRS is going to find that because obviously if the food does not come from a restaurant, the 50% exclusion still applies. Well, the IRS tells us that a restaurant is a basically a place, a business, that prepares food for immediate consumption. And that's the key takeaway. It does not matter whether that food is going to be eaten on premises. You know, the standard sit-down restaurant where you would have your meal on premises. You'd sit there, waiter comes, you serve the food, etc. We go through that whole process. Or if it is pure takeout. So the example I would use, this is food and beverage works here. So, for instance, uh, you know, various parts of the country, we have Dutch brothers or Dutch bros, I should say, if you're younger, I guess that's how you say it. Uh, or we have other, you know, coffee locations that are simply drive up. There is no indoor seating. There's no there may be there might be at best one or two outdoor benches. The Dutch bros nearest to my office uh, actually has, I think, like two little tiny tables in front of a window that nobody ever uses, as far as I could tell. And that was even pre-pandemic, nobody ever used. But it, if you got your coffee, your, you know, your cappuccino, whatever you got, your lattes, from there, let's say you brought in a bunch of lattes, you have meetings with clients and maybe their attorney, and you're bringing in all the lattes, uh, and you stop there and you get them, that will still qualify. However, what does not qualify is if you're getting food from a place that sells pre you know that sells prepackaged foods not for immediate consumption. And they give examples of such businesses that won't qualify. That includes grocery stores, specialty food stores, beer, wine, and liquor stores, drug stores, convenience stores, newsstands, or a vending machine or kiosk. Not sure how much is going to impress the client if you're getting their uh, you know, your your food for them, for your business meal from a vending machine. But okay, whatever. Everybody has their own thing. In any event, that would get the 50% disallowance. That's kind of, you know, that's the key issue here. You're going to get your 50% disallowance. Now, remember, this is good for two years, and it does mean you should segregate things. 
For instance, we know under the regulations we got last year that let's say you know you're you're buying some snacks that you have in your break room for your staff. Well, that's a fifty percent item, and it still will be for this year because that did not come from restaurant. But flip side of that is if you are buying let's say pizzas that for that business meal, then those pizzas because they're coming from a restaurant, we're assuming you're not buying that, you know, bake your own at the store or getting a frozen pizza at the grocery store and baking it at the firm, uh, that would qualify for the 100%. So the key is, are you getting it? Is the food sold and meant to be consumed immediately? Or is this food food that is meant to be consumed later, right? Not really for immediate consumption. So it's maybe prepackaged, it may be things like, you know, you go and you get a whole bunch of, you know, a, a box of candy bars that are for the snack room. Well, that's obviously wasn't being sold to be immediately consumed. Maybe you will consume it immediately, but the purpose is, you know, your average Safeway, Kroger, whatever type store, they don't really care. You know, they're, they're primary, they're, what they sell is for extended. They're not selling for immediate consumption. Now, it does raise interesting questions because some of those stores do have, you know, restaurant areas in the stores. Quite a few of them do. Um, does that count? It's a little interesting with this ruling. It would seem like this ruling would look at the primary purpose of the store and not necessarily, you know, the fact you had that specialty subset. So it's kind of interesting how you look there. They also make it clear that an employer cannot treat as a restaurant an eating facility located in business premises and used in furnishing meals that you exclude from the employee's gross income under 119, nor can you exclude an employer operating facility treated as a de minimis fringe benefit under 132E2, even if that facility is operated by a third party under contract with the employer. Doesn't matter, that's still not a restaurant. There, you're going to get the 50% disallowance. Finally, this week, let's talk about the things that have been driving people crazy, right? And this all goes back to the extended due date that we got officially last week in Notice 2021-21. That is, we extended the due date for the 1040 to May 17th, the 2020-1040. However, the first quarter estimate for 2021 is due on April the 15th. So we have this particular problem looking at our two different dates. Now, it turns out a lot of CPAs, and you wouldn't believe how many people have approached me on this, how many times I've seen this on Twitter, on message boards. This has been going crazy. We have been wasting, and I mean we, those of us in tax in general, have been wasting a lot of energy on this issue. And I figured we need to kind of just look at it and know where we stand. The issue has been, if I make a payment with that May 17th, this is the way it's usually started, then there are some variants to go with this. But if I am, if client is extending the return on May 17th, they make a payment on May 17th. When we finally get the return done in August, it turns out they were overpaid. And we apply that overpayment to 2021's estimated taxes. Now, traditionally, when we do that, and this goes back to the 80s, well, it goes back before that. Then the IRS tried to change it for a short time and had to back off. But the ruling we have is generally, if we pay with that extension, 
And then later it's discovered that that payment was larger than it had to be, and we apply it to the next year's estimate that is treated as going against that first estimate of the year mechanically. But the question is, why does it go there? And this is where it gets interesting. And the problem is, uh, and actually we were discussing this, uh, as I mentioned uh, in, in the article, uh, Michael Busa, a CPA who posted to the Jersey Society's Connect site, you know, was basically pointed out an article that had mentioned revenue, uh, revenue ruling 99-40. And revenue ruling 99-40, which is citing effectively revenue ruling 77475, uh, you know, comes the following conclusion. If an overpayment income tax for a taxable year occurs on or before the due date of the first installment of estimated taxes for a succeeding year, the overpayment is available for credit against any installment of estimated tax for a succeeding year and will be credited in accordance with the taxpayer's election. If the overpayment occurs after the due date of the first installment of the estimated tax for a succeeding tax year, it may be credited only against installment of estimated taxes due on or after that on or after the date the overpayment was made. So taken that literally, which follows effectively Revenue Ruling 77475, uh, which effectively, 77475 was revoked then reinstated like a year later. There was a short period of time in the 80s where the IRS tried to say that if you had been overpaid, so you overpaid on your tax return, you went on extension, and then you filed the return in August, well, that overpayment was not treated as made in April on the estimated taxes for the next year, but was treated as made as of the day you basically had the return filed, which meant it would come in in August. And lots of yelling, screaming occurred. The IRS backed off and said, essentially, well, we're going to follow 77475 generally, which, effect which effectively said, you know, if an overpayment of income tax for a tax year occurs on or before the first due date of the installment, then it applies against that first installment. If it's after that date, it applies after. Now, that makes it very clear. If you paid that overpayment, we didn't get overpaid until the extension was filed on May 17th. It's going to be applied to the next estimate. Now, that is an IRS revenue ruling. Yes, you could try to challenge it. But if you start looking at the code sections, you can kind of see that there is ambiguity. It's up to the IRS to apply it. So my guess is the IRS is going to win this one if they look there. What's not so clear is exactly what the IRS means by if the overpayment, you know, basically arises on or before the due date of the first installment. Uh, does the overpayment arise only on that first due date of the return? which is a position I think the IRS will try to argue, or can you say, wait, wait, the client, every payment made on this return was were taxes withheld from the employee's wages. That's all they did. We knew the next year they were going to be going out on their own, so we had to do estimated taxes, and that's why we applied that overpayment. But it was all withholding, all paid way before April 15th. Can you argue then that the taxpayer should be able to, um, you know, offset that. And I think that answer is very possibly that you could argue for that. Now, the next weird question is, what if you file your 4868 
before April 15th this year. We don't have a whole lot of time to do it. If you're listening to this after Thursday, uh, yeah, you don't have any time to do it, so you can just kind of skip this. That also wasn't terribly clear if that extension payment going in on April 14th would work. And it's even more interesting, what if somebody filed their tax return, they sent it through, you sent through the electronic return back in March, early March, and now we discover that they were going to get that until May. I think there's a better argument there that you could try to argue that, and I think the further down that list I went, the more arguments you have for the fact that the taxpayer did not take advantage of the May 17th date, therefore the statutory date can apply, and therefore we should be able to apply it. You might be able to convince the service that don't know. But fundamentally, the problem is here is that that answer that was implied clearly is not good for those who want to beef up the extension. And frankly, in any case, it's not absolutely clear. The AICPA at the end of the week issued a letter that simply suggested, which what I'm kind of implying here is, you know, the answer is not at all clear. There is no clear, absolute authority that says that you can apply it early, that you can, you know, that that you could apply the overpayment for 2020 to the first estimate of 21 and have it count. So the AICPA said, you know, either A, your client should pay the first quarter estimate here at the end, you know, here by April 15th, if they don't want to see an underpayment of estimated tax penalty, or the taxpayer, you know, should just accept the fact that there's going to be a risk that they will be assessed additional underpayment penalty. And they just need to live with that, you know, if you can. Now, the practical matter is there's not a lot of penalty that will be involved in these cases. We're not talking about huge dollar amounts in these cases. We're talking about, you know, the way I figured it, the cost of challenging the IRS if they say, no, you owe it. Well, as low as rates are right now, unless we're talking about multiple six-figure estimate payments, I don't see there is any way you even get through the very basic levels of disputing the IRS position without essentially either you know, having the client pay more for representation than they're saving and not paying the underpayment, of, underpayment penalty or the CPA or other tax advisor just essentially does gratis and gives up time worth far more than that penalty, the smart thing for the professional to do would be to just say, hey, give up. It's cheaper for me to just pay the 60 bucks than to try to dispute this penalty. So, hey, I'll pay it for you. Don't worry about it. But nevertheless, a lot of people are really worked up about this. So if you are, you may not like this answer, but Basically, the AICPA, I believe, is correct. It was a conclusion I came to that, you know, if the client just doesn't want to see, they freak out seeing the word penalty, believe somebody's going to show up from Leavenworth and, you know, take them off to jail. If they have a penalty on their return, then have them pay a 1040 ES and be done with it. If the client is one that can live with the fact that there's a slight risk, they could owe a very small penalty you know, for being one or two months late. It depends on how you pay, you know, when you finally get the return done, assuming it's done at May 17th, or the, you know, we overpay and then we get it applied later. It may not be able to go into the second estimate if it's on the overpayment, which would be your two-month payment late then. 
fine. You know, they pay for that a couple of months, so $40, $80 maybe, you know, on 10000 of underpayment. It's like, yeah, can you get that excited about it? And if not, then just accept it. And that's where you go. And no, there's not a much better answer. I hate to say it. We don't have this situation come up. In reality, this is a very unique situation. Last year, we almost had it when the second estimate was for a time going to be due before the first. But when the IRS undid that and said, nope, okay, they're all due on July 15th, we dodged this question a year ago, but this question's back now. Last year was a little different. You know, could you apply the overpayment to the second payment? Or was it applied to the first, which then theoretically before the second? Yeah, it was messier last year. But again, like I say, if your client's worried about this, then they need an estimated tax voucher, they will pay it on Thursday. If your client just says, forget it, it's not worth the bother, which is probably the rational response, then don't worry about it. And on May 17th, just do what you traditionally do. And all will be well, or at least as well as we, as well as we'd hope it to be, at least ca- you know, net cash, we're probably ahead going that other way. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of April the 12th, 2021. This is, we always are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. Remember, I, I do take a look online for state societies here in Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Washington, and Illinois. Take a look at their Connect site, see if something's posted and sometimes respond to what's posted there. So if you have questions, you know, you can keep a view in there. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's the week. Remember your trusts are due this week. Don't forget, you know, I already saw one, one CPA put up that kind of, you know, public service announcement on one of bulletin boards. Yeah, Remember, the trusts are really are still due this week. And the first estimate, if you're worried about that. I think the trusts are the bigger thing, obviously, because that's failure to file if you miss that little detail. Uh, the trust or calendar your estates, and also C-Corps. Calendar your C-Corps are also due on Thursday, so be aware of that. Otherwise, we'll come back here next week when I guess we're beginning the last month of tax season, kind of, or we just ended the last month of tax season. That's why I want to look at that. And we'll be talking to you about what else may be happening, if anything goes on, and any new developments we get here in the area of taxes under our current federal tax developments program.